Well, I heard that there's a football game today. Um, I know the reality is that some of you could care less about football. Uh, some of you like football. And so just kind of by a show of hands, uh, how many of you plan uh, to watch in whole or in part uh, some of the Super Bowl uh, tonight? All right, a few of you. Uh, so put your hands down. We'll kind of try to um, figure out where you stand with that. How many of you will watch the Super Bowl uh, because you genuinely want to watch the game and enjoy it? All right, fewer. Uh, now, how many of you will watch the Super Bowl primarily for the commercials or the halftime show? All right, uh, about equal number. Uh, now, how many of you will watch the Super Bowl only because it's an opportunity to gather with friends and family? Okay, um, and how many of you could care less about the Super Bowl at all? All right, even more. Fair enough. No matter how you feel about the Super Bowl, um, whether you're going to watch it and enjoy it, simply watch the commercials or enjoy food with family and friends or ignore it altogether, uh, one thing we can't do is we can't take away from the hard work and the preparation uh, that the athletes that will be on the field tonight have put in in the weeks and months leading up to the Super Bowl. Uh, not only has there been a whole regular season in the NFL full of weeks of preparation and scouting reports and game plans, uh, but these two teams, the 49ers and the Chiefs, have spent the last two weeks uh, studying game film of each other. They want to understand their opponent's weaknesses. They want to understand their opponent's strengths. And the coaching staff and the personnel have put together a game plan for each of them that they believe uh, will lead to success and will lead to victory. And that's a common component, not just in the NFL, uh, but in college football and high school football and middle school football. But it's not just football. It's basketball. It's baseball. It's tennis. It's individual sports where uh, an athlete or a coach will study the opponent to identify strengths and weaknesses and then craft a game plan that they hope will ensure victory uh, over that opponent. It's a scouting report is what we call the research that goes into it, and it's the game plan to combat it. And I would submit to you the same thing is true when it comes to us and our hope of experiencing victory uh, and success in life. And let me clarify what I mean by that. I don't mean that we would be rich in the eyes of the world. I don't mean that we would have notoriety in the eyes of the world. When I say success in life, I'm talking specifically the success that God, our creator, envisions for us. If we're going to be successful, we're going to experience life as God intends, as God has designed, as God has purposed for us, as God has promised us, uh, that victory will only come because we also have been intentional about understanding our opponent who has strengths and who has weaknesses. Why are we talking about opponents? Why are we talking about scouting reports and game plans? We're in this series called The Basics where I'm hoping to provide for you something that will stick with you the rest of your life that will not only transform how you think about what we call the gospel, this good news about who God is and who you are and what he's done and what he's called you to, but not only that you can understand it, but you can share it with other people that their lives might be transformed. And as we look at the simplicity of the gospel, as we look at the basics of the gospel, we see that there is a big God. Each week we're walking through one letter, this acronym basics. And last week we saw that there is a big God. That's what the B stands for. He's a great God. He's an incredible God. He has created you and he has formed you with purpose. He loves you. He wants you to experience life as he has intended. He has plans. He has purposes for you. That's how he has designed life to work. He made you special as a human being, more special than any other things that he created. And yet often what keeps us from experiencing God's very best is that there also is an adversary. That's the A. 
There is an opponent. There is an enemy. There is one and his forces who stand opposed to what God wants to do in this world. And so as we think about who God is and who we are and what he's done and what he's called us to, while God is a big God and that's where everything begins, we also have to appreciate that there is an adversary. There is an opponent who stands against him. And so what I wanna do over the next several minutes is, is build a scouting report for you of the enemy, the adversary. Who is he? What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? And I want you to see a very simple game plan that God has provided that helps us be people as we trust and follow Jesus who live in victory. So let's look at this scouting report. Uh, if you're gonna build a scouting report about the enemy, where you would need to begin is just by simply accepting and acknowledging that the adversary is real. Now that may seem like a peculiar place to begin, uh, but I'll tell you why I begin there. Uh, 15 years ago, Barna conducted a research survey of American Christians. In 2009, he surveyed thousands of Christians, Barna Research Firm did, and they asked the question, do you believe that Satan is real? That this spiritual being opposed to God is real? And way back in 2009, and some of you weren't even alive then, only 29% of Christians surveyed strongly believed that Satan was a real spiritual force of evil in this world. Less than a third of people who were surveyed that called themselves Christians believed that Satan was real. The majority of people believed that he was some sort of mythological or fictional being or person. That's alarming to me. And why I share research that's 15 years old is because as we look at what's happened in America and how less people believe in Jesus today than they did 15 years ago, how we can see a watering down even among followers of Jesus of the faith, I would guess that that number is even worse today. And even if it's the same, to think that only one third of people who say they trust and follow Jesus believe that Satan is real is alarming. So I start there. If we're going to have a plan of attack for the one who's coming at God's people and God's purposes, we have to begin by saying he's real. He's not fictitious. He's not mythological. Uh, Satan is not a man wearing a red suit with a pitchfork in his hand and a tail. He is uh, the mighty adversary opposed to God and his intents and his purposes and his plans and his purposes in this world. Now, if you don't believe that Satan is real, you're probably saying, Craig, where's your evidence? Why do you believe that Satan is real? And my evidence exists uh, in, in the word of God, in the Bible. Because when you read the Bible from cover to cover, you cannot form an opinion that Satan is simply a mythological or fictitious character. Quite literally, from the beginning in Genesis, we see him show up on the scene. He shows up throughout the Old Testament, not as much as he does in the New, but in the New Testament, he shows up. And in fact, what we read in the New helps us better understand what we see in the Old, but we see across the board this consistent message that Satan is a real, spiritual, powerful being opposed to God's best. Satan goes by a number of names in Scripture. The two most famous are Satan or the devil, uh, I will use Satan most probably because Satan, when translated, means the adversary. The one opposed to God and his purposes and his people. 
Uh, You'll also hear him called the evil one, the enemy, uh, the father of lies, the prince of this world. But from Genesis through Revelation, never once does the Bible give us an indication that he is just some made up mythological figure or fictitious figure. He is real. But even more than that, if as a follower of Jesus, you believe that Jesus is real, you cannot believe that Satan is fake because Jesus, whom you believe in, wholeheartedly tells us that Satan is real. In fact, the the, the passage of scripture we're gonna kind of use as a framework for this scouting report is Revelation chapter 12. And it is a revelation that comes directly from Jesus to his disciple John. We learn that in Revelation chapter one. And he shares with him through this creative, uh, sometimes we might even say abstract imagery um, about the realities in the spiritual realm and how they affect followers of Jesus in the world. And then so John writes a letter to encourage God's people that there's victory over the enemy and his schemes and his ways. And within this letter, as Jesus reveals to John, he shares with us what we often consider an origin story of the enemy, the adversary, Satan. And to me, that's once again more evidence, not just Jesus casting out demons, not just Jesus rebuking Satan, not just Jesus resisting him in the wilderness, but but Jesus, when he has a chance to, to share with John what's happening, he tells him that Satan is real. I wanna read verses seven through 11 of Revelation 12, and then you can follow along. It says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. So the dragon and his angels aren't strong enough, and they lose their place in heaven. And then we learn who this dragon is. The great dragon was hurled down. Who is that dragon? The ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the adversary, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And so I pray alongside of you that God would bless uh, the reading and the preaching of his word today. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 11, give us this framework by which we can better understand the enemy. And again, we see that the adversary, our enemy, Satan, is real. But we can add to the scouting report that the adversary is also supernatural and he is powerful. You cannot lead an army of angels against the good angels and Michael and against God unless you have power. He is powerful. He is supernatural. It's clear here that he is an angelic being, now a fallen angelic being, but but he is supernatural. He he is not human. 
In fact, he possesses more power than humans do in and of our own strength and in our own flesh. The enemy is supernatural and powerful. And you can see this throughout the story of scripture. You can go to the garden. And by the way, this is one of those passages that helps us look back and better understand what we learn about the adversary in the Old Testament. Because what does it tell us of the dragon? He's that serpent, the devil, Satan. And as we look back to Genesis and we see this serpent show up in the Garden of Eden, we can know that this is the enemy. This is the adversary. This is Satan. And what does he do? In his power, he tries to deceive God's people. We can turn to the pages of the book of Job and we can see Satan and his power to afflict pain on one of God's servants. We can look into the book of Daniel. We can see how Daniel was praying for 21 days and, and, and Michael, the angel that we just read about in Revelation, came to Daniel and he said, listen, God heard your prayer on day one, but the prince of Persia, a way of describing Satan, kept me and delayed me in coming to you. We see his power there. We see his power that he would try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. We see his power as he afflicts Judas in the upper room. We see his power in the garden as he tries to convince Jesus to turn from God's purposes for his life. And again, we see his power throughout Paul's letters and even into uh, the book of Revelation. The enemy is supernatural and powerful. So as we put together our scouting report, we see that he's real. We see that he's supernatural and powerful. And as we think about how powerful he is, here's something that we should be inclined to understand, something that should shape our life. We should not underestimate or deal casually with this enemy, with this adversary. And yet, what so often happens in our modern day? We create movies like Hellboy and Hellboy 2 where Satan becomes kind of this joking figure and we laugh and we find it comical. We portray him in skits on Saturday Night Live. We develop whole series for Netflix, cartoons even, that, that celebrate the enemy and his work in the world. We, including followers of Jesus, pay money to watch horror films that celebrate the cult and the cultic behavior and demonic forces. We play video games where evil and demonic things are celebrated. We deal with him so casually, and yet he's real and he's supernatural and he's powerful. We cannot underestimate that power. But he's more than that, as we look into Revelation 12. Not only is he supernatural and powerful, not only is he real, um, but he's a rebel. He is rebellious to his core. Rebellion flows through his supernatural veins. We see in Revelation 12, the enemy, the adversary, Satan, fighting against God and God's angel, Michael, and the good angels. He is rebellious. And we, again, we see in the story that God's been authoring from the beginning of time with humankind that he has long been opposed to God's work. He's long rebelled against what God's purposes and God's intents are. And I want to share with you just a few of the ways that we see him being rebellious. Uh, we see this in Revelation 12, and we'll look to some other words after this. But one of the ways that he has rebelled against God is that he spends great effort uh, accusing God's people day and night. If you look at verse 10, it tells us, it, re it, re it calls Satan the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night, that he has been hurled down. 
One of the ways the enemy rebels is that he, he, he prides himself on assaulting God's people with oppressive false accusations and thoughts. He wants to convince us that we're failures, that God can never forgive us for the things that we have done, that God can never use us because of our past mistakes and our sin, that life is hopeless, that, that there's nothing good that can ever happen, and the list goes on and on. He accuses God's people. He attacks God's people. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And we're told by Peter that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, he wants to eat followers of Jesus for breakfast. It's on the menu every day, every moment. So our, our enemy, our adversary is real. He's supernatural and powerful. He's a rebel, a rebel who accuses God's people. Uh, he's also a liar and a murderer. If you look at John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to a group of people and he's speaking of the devil. And here partway through verse eight, uh, we read this descriptor of the devil. It says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan, the adversary, is real, supernatural, powerful, a rebel, a rebel who accuses and a rebel who lies. And we see the lies in the Garden of Eden. We see the lies of people to our history have believed and chased after false gods. We see the lies in the wilderness with Jesus. And, and we feel the lies today when he convinces us that there are things in God's word we shouldn't follow, things in God's word we shouldn't believe, things in God's word that we think should be too hard for us, and so we abandon them. He is a liar and a murderer, but he's more than that. John 10, 10 tells us that he's a thief. Jesus is speaking and he says that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have life in its full. But he tells us that the enemy is a thief. The adversary is a thief. We see in scripture the adversary is more than that, that the adversary doesn't act alone, that the adversary has spiritual forces of evil that accompany him and, and do his bidding and do his work. We call them demons or, or, or evil spirits. And they will oppress God's people and even possess those who don't yet trust and follow Jesus. He doesn't act alone. And so when we look at this kind of in summary, we see from Revelation 12 and then building out from that framework that Satan is this adversary who is real, who is supernatural, and who is powerful, who is a rebel, who is opposed to God's best and God's intents, this big God who cares about us and created us and wants us to live for him. He's opposed to him. He accuses us, he lies, he murders, he steals, and he has a host of those, a host of other spiritual forces helping him. That, that, that's a pretty daunting scouting report, if you ask me. But here's the beauty of a scouting report. It shows the opponent's strengths and it also shows the opponent's weaknesses. We have to remember that the Bible is not a book about the devil. The Bible is not a book about Satan. The Bible is not a book about the adversary. The Bible is a book about God, about a God who is victorious, about a God who is great, about a God who is good. And when we look into this and we discover this scouting report about the enemy, about the adversary, guess what else we discover? Is that Satan, the adversary, is limited. 
that Satan, the adversary, is defeated through Jesus Christ on the cross. And that Satan, the adversary, can be resisted and we can experience victory. So let me show you those things. Satan, the adversary, is limited. He is powerful. I've I've already shared that. We see that from Genesis to Revelation. Supernatural and powerful. He's more powerful than you as a human, me as a human in my own strength. But he is not more powerful than God. And so as you look through Satan's work throughout scripture, you'll also see this, is that he's always held in check and he's always limited by God. In the garden, it's not just Adam and Eve that are deceived, but but Satan is also cursed. He's told that he's defeated, that his time is short, that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. In Job, he's permitted to afflict Job, but only at God's permission, and then he's stopped. Even when we look into Daniel and we see that Daniel's prayers were interrupted, the, the, the adversary was fighting to keep um, Dave, Daniel from hearing the answer to his prayer. Who ultimately prevailed? Michael, the angel of the Lord. In the wilderness, while we see the enemy's power, the adversary's power in tempting Jesus, what was Jesus able to do? Resist him and turn from him and be victorious. When we look to Revelation, even chapter 12, who is it that's cast out of heaven? It's not Michael and the good angels. It's not God, but it's the enemy. He is limited. We have to understand this. As powerful as the enemy is, and we shouldn't underestimate him, C.S. Lewis says that we often do two things. We either give the enemy too much attention and too much credit, or we ignore him to our peril. But, but when, we, when we look into scripture, we see that he is powerful. Don't underestimate him, but also don't give him too much credit. Don't overestimate him. He's not all powerful like our God. He is not all knowing like our God. He is not ever present like our God. He is limited. He's also defeated. Defeated through what Christ did on the cross. Now there are some encouraging words in Colossians chapter two. I think I'll have them for you on the screen in just a moment. Colossians 2, verse 15. I'm gonna actually back up uh, to verse uh, 13. It says, when we were dead in our sins uh, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is the power and authorities of darkness, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has defeated. It's the fulfillment of what we see in Genesis chapter three, that the offspring of the woman has crushed the serpent's head. So we live in this reality now where the enemy is defeated. He still can work in this world. He still has power in this world. In fact, Jesus calls him, I think it's three different times in the gospel of John, the prince of this world or the ruler of this world, but but he is not the king of our lives. He is limited in his power and he is defeated by Jesus on the cross. And as we believe and trust in Jesus, we become people of victory because Jesus through his spirit lives in us. So he's limited, he's defeated. And because he's limited and defeated, he can be resisted and we can have victory. We can have victory uh, through Jesus. I I love, um, I think it's James that says that we can resist the devil and he will flee us. If we go to Revelation chapter 12 again, 
I want you to see how this victory is represented. Verse 11, after talking about how the enemy, Satan, the adversary, accuses God's people, he says that those same brothers and sisters who are accused by the adversary triumph over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. We get to live victoriously as we live and abide in Christ through his power. J.I. Packer is a prominent theologian, and here's what he said in his book, God's Words. He says, the Christian's life is not a bed of roses. It is a battlefield on which he has, cons- he has to consistently fight for his life. And the first rule of success in war is to know your enemy. And that's what we've tried to do this morning. So we try to do as we set you up for this second week of the basics is to give you this scattering report. This is who our adversary is. Yes, he's real. Yes, he's supernatural and powerful. Yes, he is a rebel, a rebel who accuses and lies and murders, a rebel who steals. He's a thief. He has those that work for him, but he is also an adversary who is limited and who is defeated and whom we can resist. So as we think about this bigger picture of the basics, again, remembering the simplicity of the gospel, who God is, who we are, what God's done, what he's called us to, we begin with a big God, a big God who is infinitely and perfectly and eternally good, a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present, a God who formed you and created you in his image, who has purposes and intents and designs and plans for your life, And you will only find ultimate joy and hope and peace as you live for him. But there is an adversary who is opposed to God, who is powerful, who is real, who comes against God's people and even possesses those who are yet to follow God at times. And he works evil in this world and he does all kinds of horrible things. But that's not the end of the story because we've already seen, we got a hint at what's coming next week is that God's given a solution. He sent Jesus to triumph over the enemy on the cross. And as we trust and follow Jesus, he invites us to experience his life. And as we come to follow him, he changes us. And he equips us for this battle against the enemy to experience his victory. And we live a life surrendered to him. That's the gospel. That's the beauty and the simplicity of it. But we are engaged in a war. So we've given you the scouting report. This is who the adversary is. Now, what about God's game plan? And God's game plan is, is very simple. Uh, Mark Bubeck, who has written on spiritual warfare, he has a book called Warfare Praying. I have it recommended in uh, the resource sheet for today. Um, he says basically there are four components to God's game plan. He doesn't use the word game plan, but our fight against the enemy and the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, the first is our own standing in Jesus Christ. When we come to trust and follow Jesus, we step into, in faith, the victory that is his, his victory over the enemy. And then our identity as followers of Jesus is our ultimate weapon against the enemy because we now have his power living in us. The second part of what he says is essential to um, our victory over the enemy is the Holy Spirit that comes to us as we trust and follow Jesus. The third element is the armor of God. And the fourth is prayer. 
And so I just want to spend a few minutes looking at this game plan. First and foremost, do you trust and follow Jesus? You cannot have victory over the adversary apart from Jesus. But here's the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus, the beauty of this solution and this invitation and the change and the surrender that can come to us. It's available to every one of us. If we will turn to him and we will believe, we will place our faith in him, we will repent of our own sin and living life our way, we will confess him as the Lord and master of our lives, our faith will drive us into the waters of baptism. There's a baptistry right over here where we join Jesus in his death and we're raised to life with him and his spirit fills us. That's the ultimate way to gain victory over the enemy. His Holy Spirit fills us and he helps us as we live in this world, even where the enemy still wages war, even though he's defeated. But then he also gives us the armor of God. And I will admit, and this is a personal confession, is that I have treated the armor of God far too casually. I've been convicted of this. Uh, I, I've been taught this by the example of my own wife. Um, she, she's discovered the power of the armor of God, and she prays the armor of God over her life daily. And when I look to Ephesians chapter 6, and I see Paul talk about the armor of God, I'm going to read this section in just a moment. There's nothing in this section that gives me the sense that Paul intended this to be optional. Like there's an expectation, there's an urgency that those who read this letter will put on the full armor of God, that they will think about it, that they will, they will be able to take their stand against the enemy with it. And I resolve after my study this week that I'm gonna be intentional with the armor of God. I'm not gonna treat it passively anymore. And I would challenge you to do the same. Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to keep on standing. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. If you're a disciple of King Jesus, you would be wise and I would be wise to be intentional with the armor of God. That we would maybe even pray it over ourselves that we would experience his peace and victory as we guard ourselves with his truth, with his righteousness, with his peace, with faith, with salvation, with his spirit, and with his word. We should be people of prayer. So be intentional with the armor of God, but be people who pray. And, and one of the things that's been observed in Christianity in America is this, is that God's people don't pray very much. We are distracted, given opportunities of silence. We could direct our thoughts to the Lord and pray for things around us. We often will instead pick up our phones and scroll. 
and we wonder why the enemy gains such a foothold. But what if we took more action and we prayed continually as Paul encourages? What if we prayed in the spirit and we prayed for other believers and we prayed for ourselves and we prayed for those who are championing his causes throughout the world? We would know that God is doing battle in these spiritual realms. And God is faithful to bring the victory. So if we're going to have a game plan against this formidable foe, let's stand in Jesus. Let's listen and follow the urgings and the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. Let's intentionally put on the armor of God, being reminded of his truth and his righteousness and his peace. Let's be people of faith. Let's let's be people who who, who are reminded daily of of the salvation that is ours and the, the identity we have in him as we put on the helmet of salvation. Let's let's yield his word, the sword of the spirit. And let's be people who pray. Uh, In the supplemental guide this week, um, something we've provided for you is uh, a prayer. Uh, It's called a daily prayer and declaration. The prayer is used with permission. Um, Audrey, in um, her own spiritual journey, uh, was inspired by the work of Mark Bubeck and a man named Neil Anderson, and she crafted this prayer. Uh, it's a prayer that's going to be included later this year in a book that's being published by friends of ours. But it's a prayer that I hope will, will help you as you try to be intentional with prayer and the armor of God. And so it's included on this sheet, and it's a prayer you can even pray daily, and maybe as God shapes your heart, you can write your own prayer. Um, God has long used the prayers of people over generations that we can pray them alongside of them. That's why uh, liturgies of prayer are so powerful, even in the church to this day. Uh, And also on the supplement guide, you'll find some questions for your life group or for your family as you process um, the content for basics. And then I also want to remind you, if you weren't with us last week, that uh, there's a reading plan. These are two separate. One is vertical, one is horizontal. The horizontal ones are the weekly supplement sheets, and the vertical one is the reading plan. So you can read with us following each message to help you better understand the simplicity of the gospel. So there are readings for week two, the adversary. Uh, Also some guidelines for maybe how to make that reading time helpful to you or to your family if you're doing it with them. Uh, We want to encourage you. God's good news is incredible news. Um, This big God loves you. There is an enemy. There is an adversary opposed to you. But God has supplied that solution. He invites us to follow him. He will change us. And he leads us into this life of surrender. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that you teach us what we need to know about the adversary and the enemy who's at work in this world. And God, we praise you uh, that as we trust you, um, that he does, he does not have power over us, that we have victory in you. So God, remind us, help the words from your word that you want to stick within us, our hearts and our minds. May they shape our behavior and our actions. And God, may we be people who live boldly for you. God, if there are those who have yet to follow you, may they come to, to know you today. Um, to to come and to talk with someone, to to put their life in you, to be able to take their stand against this adversary, against this foe. Um, God, we need you. Uh, We need you all the time. And it's in your name we pray, amen.